Hello and welcome to the 45th British Football Coaches Network episode of the Developing Your Football World podcast. I'm Matt Ward and today's guest is an exciting one as he used to be the former head coach at Lillehammer FK in Norway. He's also held a load of scouting positions including scouting for Manchester United. He was also the head international scout for West Brom as well as their national scouting manager, Notts County Academy Director and a youth manager at Nottingham Forest. We're going to hear all about it now. Today, it's a great pleasure to introduce Russell Hoylett, who is on the show. Russell, thank you so much for your time, mate. Thank you for joining me. And how have you been? What you been up to? Yeah, obviously, it's crazy times at the moment. So I'm thinking like a lot of people, it's, it's probably done me a little bit of a favour. It's given me a little bit of a break from football. Um, which I was probably ready for anyway. But um, saying that, during that period, I've, uh, I've been working at Oxford University. I've been uh, heading up their women's programme there. So the women's game is something I probably wanted to have a look at for some time and just see what it was sort of like. And um, it's been fantastic. It's been really good. It's a totally different environment. Obviously, it's, you know, it's probably the most famous university in the world. The facilities, you know, personify what, what, what the place is all about. And, you know... It's, it's quite bizarre when the players are far more intelligent than me. <laughs> so I get, I get a, million, a million and one questions constantly. It's a totally different approach to whereas usually the lads are not really that interested. You obviously go to Oxford University with a five in questions at your left, right and centre. So as a coach, it's, it's, it's challenging and it's, um, it's fun. It's good. Russ, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, obviously we're going to uh, your, your role with uh, Oxford University later on, but... When you are going to uh, coach for a university team, Cambridge, Oxford, Oxford etc., you're going to get hit with some questioning. Why? What's the, ration, what's the rationale behind this coach? Or you're you're going to get that, aren't you? Oh, it's great because obviously the coaching philosophy has always been to, no matter what level the players are, whether they've been working at pro clubs or grassroots, I always strip them back to basics and I always presume they know nothing. Yeah. And you go through the system that way, you know, because I think, presumption is an is it's a dangerous tool I think at times even with a lot of the pro players I've worked with there's things you you think they wouldn't know and don't know so I was going with the attitude they don't know but obviously so you do it in little blocks you're coaching but obviously with the Oxford girls you, you start coaching and before you can get to that point they're already asking you about B you know once you're A you're asking about B, C, D, E and F you're like well, I'm going to admit, that comes later and they just start laughing but it's because they're just highly intelligent and actually inquisitive so yeah, it's um, it's fun. It's fun. And and looking at university football, uh, it's you can get some decent standards going on. Obviously, there's some uh, women's teams which have uh, players who play in the for, for the national teams as well, or the uh, all uh, Olympic university games, etc. And it, you know, you can get some decent games going on and, a, and an all right standard as well. Yeah, well, I think I think some of the uh, I think some of the pro clubs are probably missing a trick, realistically. I'm probably have overlooked. It. I remember going back into the day when I was a kid, and I remember quite a few um, pro players came out of um, out of university teams. I remember I'm, I'm a big Villa fan. I remember we had a lad called Andy Coman who came out and he played for the British uh, universities team. And I think by chance, I think I think one of the scouts happened to be watching the game. I think some relative was there. And he got picked up from that, so you never know. But it's like our, our women's program uh, this year. We've got such a strong team, but we've got a player from Canada, but we've got a player in particular who's from America, and she's phenomenal. And she would walk into the women's super league, I mean, easily, and be one of the, probably one of the star players. She's that good. The problem we've got is again because of academic. She's off to um, um, Top Gun in America. She has to be a fighter pilot. So she's here to do a master's for one year. So I said to her, I said, listen, I can, I can get you into probably any club you want. Everyone's going to want you. She's phenomenal. I mean, she's that, she's that good. But you, you can go back and be a fighter pilot later on when you, when you yeah, finish. Do it later. Yeah, do it later. <laughs> the world's a safe place at the moment. You don't need to go. <laughs> she's wow. not fighting at all. Wow. So look, you, you, you played a little bit, Russ. So just a, a quick overview into your, your, uh, your, your door in, into coaching? I mean, was it something you always had in mind or something that you wanted to go into after playing or did you, was it by default? Um, well, when I was, uh, as, as a youth player, I was at Derby County. I was only there until about 16, 17. 
Then I went into the conference, but I did it more born out of frustration. So I took my first FA level one when I was 17. And straight away after, it was the old FA prelim then, the old FA level two. And I took that when I was 17 as well. And I did that just, like I say, totally out of frustration. I think in those days, uh, coaching was a very small world. It's not the beast it is today. Yeah, It was a job for the boys. Unless you were an ex-pro, you weren't going to get in, into that. And I felt um, a lot of people were in it for the wrong reason. Within the, within the system then, I think it's very much a case of they couldn't let go of the game uh, more than actually wanting to be a coach, where I think it's different now if people actually want to get into coaching. And I, I wanted people to have the opportunities I probably didn't. So um, I started taking I took my coaching badges quite early. Then I had a bit of a gap, I think more so because I ended up playing for the conf- in the conference for a while. And then, God, so I'm 47 now. So I think I took my first uh, full-time job in 2000. I went to Singapore. I did my B licence. And uh, a lad who I played with in the conference, you know, I've had a business over in Singapore. So I went just, just there, just, just to, I wanted to learn the trades. And I've always said, if you're going to be a good coach or manager or you've got any aspirations to sort of do that, I think you've got to learn your trade. I think there's too many people just wanting to jump straight in at the top level. And playing to coaching and to managing, it's a different beast. Even from coaching to managing, some people are fantastic coaches, not destined to be a manager. Some people are great managers, not particularly that great at, at coaching, but their their actual football knowledge and what they want to do tactically is, is, is immense, realistically. So I went to Singapore, um, ended up playing out there again, which I had no intention of, which is a bit of a shock to the system, 110 degree heat and 100% humidity. It was no well, was that was it still called the S League then? Was it the S League? It was, yeah, it was the S League, yeah, yeah. And it, typically, I went there three three years after the government put a box and all the high salaries because of all the illegal gambling syndicates over there. So they punished the S League. That's right, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so I was on there on peanuts, but I had no, I had no intention of uh, of playing out there. Luckily, I ended up playing for um, over there. There's a lot of ex pros and semi pros, and they'd formed like it was like a British, it was like a European select team. And it was better than playing in the S League, to be honest. We would play against, um, I don't know, like the Malaysian under 21s, the Japanese under 23 teams. So instead of those teams coming out to Europe, we were the next, next best thing. So while I was over there, I was, it was fortunate I got to work with a lot of um, European coaches. So I got to see how they sort of worked, like Germans, Croatians, Italians, um, British coaches as well. So it was great for my experience. Uh, then I came back to the UK. Um, Set up a coaching company, uh, and we did really well. Uh, we've had like 98 players, some pro clubs now, you know, 14 year period. So we were pleased with that. But off the back of that, I got asked to go and work at Nottingham Forest as one of their youth team managers. Uh, after that, I got head hunted by Aston Villa to go on their recruitment team uh, and work my way up from there into the uh, national scouts. Uh, West Point Albion asked me to go and do the same. And off the back of that, um, I got asked to go to Notts County as their academy manager under 23s, um, which was a great experience. And then from there, uh, Manchester United came. Um, at this stage, I was more interested in going down the um, coaching managerial route, but yeah. Man United come calling. <laughs> <certain teams>. you, <laughs> know, you just don't really turn, you don't really turn down. So, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I went, yeah, okay. So I worked on there, worked on there. They're what's called the Pro Scouts team. So you go into all the other clubs and you're recruiting from there really from the first team all the way down to lads who already signed at academies. Yeah. At that time, I was doing a lot of work over in Norway as well, um, by my own company and, and just a little bit of scouting over there as well. And I was fortunate to eventually get asked to go manage um, Lillehammer FK in the Norwegian Pro Leagues, which was a great experience. So, yeah, and then came out to the UK and then COVID hit and, yeah, I'm like <laughs> everyone else, just left in limbo. That's where we're at. So where it all started really nice and tropical in Singapore, we're, we're, this is where we're at now. So. Uh, I've, I've done two extremes. So I've gone from where it's just ridiculous you get constant drinks breaks to <laughs> Singapore, sorry, to Norway, where you have to restrict how long you gave them on the yeah. drinks breaks. So my first coaching session with the team, it was minus 18. It was, on a, it was on a Wednesday night. It was minus 18 degrees. And... I literally, the amount of muscles I pulled. So if the ball came out, as a coach, you just kick it back into play. It was that cold. By the time you'd warmed up the players, if you'd literally had even two minutes rest, 
we need to kick a ball. And that time I was a former hip flexor. Just because my muscles the muscles were basically seized were freezing up. It was um, yeah. <laughs> I thought I preferred Singapore weather, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> You're not taking any goal kicks and putting in a set piece. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> talk, talk it, talking through it. That was that was a, that was a phrase. Talking through that one. Russ, just going, uh, just a quick thing you mentioned when you was playing uh, a while back in, in Singapore, you know, that experience of working around or playing with or, or playing for different coaches or being around different coaches of different nationalities, how, how valuable would you say that would be for, uh, for, for a coach who hasn't moved away from the UK, for example, or who hasn't had access to uh, professional coaches in a prof- professional setup? I think it totally um, shapes the way you want to sort of your coaching philosophy um, for the future. And I think I would recommend to any any person, the sooner you do that, the better. To be honest, um, I think getting into the pro game in the U in, in the UK, it's it's not easy at all. It's not it's, it's not easy at all. Um, so if you want to get exposure and you want to start getting your experience, I'd say look, I'd say look look at going overseas. So once I pass my B license. Once you pass a qualification, as far as I'm concerned, it means nothing. It means you've passed a qualification. What comes next is, is how you use that and how you get the experience. That's what's going to shape you as a coach. So let's face it, when you do your B licence and you come out, especially I did my B licence in, God, I think it was 1999. So it was in the days before the internet was as big as what it is now. So we couldn't just jump onto YouTube and go and look at uh, sessions, what people are doing. So I think it's a lot easier to do, to, to become a better coach now because the resources that you've got available are like phenomenal back in our day he didn't have that so I sort of looked at him and thought right okay well let's go and work full-time I remember doing my first session full-time thinking oh you know everyone's got a banker you do you, you, you do your great session but then after that I thought god I've only got about four more sessions I know so all of a sudden I've got to learn very very quickly um but what happened was over there it was quite interesting like I said I worked with a lot of Croatian coaches who were very similar to the English in style then the Germans, I worked with a couple of German coaches as well. And it was phenomenal to see how what their ideology was, how they set their teams up, what they expected from their players. And I think tactically, it was it was bizarre. So in Singapore, it was good as well. They also had a league called the Cosmo League, which was below the, the S League. What people don't realise is, so all the expats living over there, there was two British teams in it. There was a German team in it, an Italian team, a Swiss team, a Japanese team, a Canadian team. So every week we played, it was like playing an international game. And the teams we always got hammered against was the Germans and the Swiss. Because in those days, they played, let me go back from the, like, the Mateus days, the Lofa Mateus days, yeah. where they would play literally with a sweeper yeah. behind, but you'd also play in front when you attacked. And we could never work out how to pick up that forward sweeper. So I used to sit there, I used to pick the brains of obviously my mate, who's a German coach, and just say, you know, you know, show me how you coach this, show me the sessions you do for this. Because we can't deal with it. We just don't know how to play against this system you play. So tactically, I think what it, what it taught me was from very early days, which I think this is where some of the coaches, especially within academies, go probably get it slightly wrong, is understanding that tactical side as well. You know, you can't be one-dimensional. Um, you know, I think you've got to be able to sort of mix it up or see within a game very, very quickly what you need to change. And I think that experience just opened up so many doors for me from a very early, uh, from an early part of my development. And I think that's why it sort of helped me to sort of develop, you know, um, and shape my sort of uh, coaching philosophy. Off the back of that, I ended up studying in Holland. And when I, you know, I got that sort of enthralled into what they do. I went to Holland and studied with their, at the KNVB with the Dutch Academy. Um, so I ended up doing my international coaching license there just because I was intrigued to see how the Europeans sort of, you know, coach their systems and why, why are they so successful? What, what were some of the biggest standout uh, points uh, from actually doing courses over there? Was there anything what really you thought, wow, you know what, that, that's massively different and probably better? Uh, I... If I would have had one of those coaches when I was a kid, I would have been 10 times a player. I, I, I became. Um, it's what, what they teach. They, they teach you, uh, massively, obviously, the technical side. Yeah. Hugely on the technical side. Physical development, it's very much more age-appropriated than what it is in the UK. I think on the physical development, I don't think we're still great on that. 
at all. I think we're still miles behind other sports. I think the other big thing was about how to play as a team as well as an individual. I think this is where they were good. You understood your role fully. And I think that's coming to uh, the Premier League more so since against like your Guardiola's and your clocks have come in and even like your Vengas and your Mourinho's. Everyone now knows what your sort of role is or, or what's expected from you. So the prime example was when I was when we was obviously in Holland, when you played at the time, they, they were quite clever. They'd say, right, okay, you're going to play like the Dutch national team. So you're going to play as uh, your seed off or your way of like no pressure. But I was, I was like, Huntelaar, Jan Klaus Huntelaar, Klaus Jan Huntelaar, I was like, oh my days, you're going to play like him. So I went, okay. So they, so they, they and the guys from the national team themselves, the instructors, so they work with these players and they said, we've got to coach you exactly how we would coach them, which was, for me, was just phenomenal. So I remember the one time, I'm typically English centre forward and I'm chasing down their back four. And he, and he goes, stop. The coach goes, goes, what are you doing? I goes, well, I'm chasing the back four. He said, look behind you. And I sort of look behind me. There's a massive, said, massive space. The rest, the rest of your team are 30 yards there. He said, you, <laughs> he said, you're an idiot. What are you doing? And I said, but this is what we've been taught in England ever since I was a kid. You chase. He said, but you're on your own. He said, you can't do anything. And, and he, was, he was the first person, Matt, in all of my playing career from the age of seven all the way through going up from pro clubs to semi-pro clubs so-called great coaches never told me this and there's me just doing what we've always done in England and that's when I realised I've got a lot to learn yeah you know, I've got a hell of a lot to learn and that was probably the biggest impact I ever had because for the first time I thought what I thought was right and what I've been taught was right is totally wrong totally wrong well what were some of your experiences and the differences in the experiences you've had uh, around the clubs you worked for in England? Uh, in, I mean, obviously you, you've been in different roles, but you've been at some big clubs. And are there any major differences in, in terms of environments and learning environments uh, for the players as well because of the, the standard or level of coaching? Yeah, <laughs> It's a tough one in the UK because clubs vary so much in their approach to how they treat the staff, how they treat the, the kids within the academies, how they treat their first team. I think it's um, I think it's totally different. So I think every club you've you've learned some good things and you've learned not to do so, you know, some bad things realistically. So for instance, at Man United, it was it was very structured in terms of like the sort of detail you'd get, what they expected from you, it was very sort of clear. Um, it was clear your role within the organisation was very much defined, you know, what they expected from you, what they were looking for. Um, when I went to West Bromwich Albion, it was probably one of the best academies I worked for. Um, you know, it's everything, everything there. It's a very friendly environment, and that's what I found. And I think, I think people have got to realise football's cutthroat. So if you're coming into the industry now, um, you've got to be prepared. You know, if you think by being nice to someone, they're going to be nice back to you. Don't, you shouldn't be in football because it ain't going to work that way. <laughs> There's a lot of ruthless people, that's all I can say, who, who, who are desperate for the number one. It's, it's not what I do. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in karma, to be honest, and I think if you do right by someone else, you hopefully you'll, you'll, get, you'll reap the rewards. And I'm not the backstabbing kind of person, but there's a lot of that in football. When I went to West Brom, it was probably the most friendliest environment I've ever been, been to. What you find at some clubs is, I know... Uh, I'm not going to name the clubs to be honest, but for recruitment, I always, so when I was so the best way to describe was when I was at Nottingham Forest, for instance, I always want and I was coaching. I always wanted the scouts to come to the training ground. I wanted to be able to speak to the scouts and say, you know, listen, at the moment we've got some really good players. You know, unless you find someone exceptional, there's no point. Listen, don't just keep bringing kids in. It's not fair on them. Yeah, you know, you understand. You've got like a, an eight-year-old kid, a thirteen-year-old kid, a fourteen-year-old kid. You know, if they come in and then we release them, it can affect their football for life. So, so don't just keep sending us players. Come and see what we've got. I'll tell you what we think, where they're going to develop, where we, where we think their development is, you know, uh, and work off that, you know. So I always wanted, I always wanted to encourage that. To the point where I worked at another club, who was a Premier League club, and who were the complete reverse. They didn't want you anywhere near the coaching staff. The head of coaching didn't want you anywhere near the coaching staff. And we're like, come on. And you felt like you were in two different organisations. And it was really bad. Uh, you know, to the point where a lot, a lot, of, the, a lot of scouts, just, you know, there's no point. 
And it's really bizarre because all the scouts wanted to come to see what players we've got so that they can enhance their decision making. And that was sort of taken away from, which I didn't like. So, again, like I say, with West Brom, they're very open. You know, they're quite happy for you to go and speak to the coaches. The coaches would always take time out to speak to you. Uh, and you'd say, you know, again, we'd have the conversation I just described, you know, um, you know, who are you looking for? You know, is there any particular areas you're looking at? And I'd say, listen, find me a left back, desperate for the left back, you know, or desperate for a right midfielder. So for me, it was great. So then I've got targeted scouting, which I think a lot of it should be. It makes my job a lot easier. So if I'm trying to look at everyone around a pitch like that, trying to spot who's who, but if you're just looking for certain positions, it makes your role a hell of a lot easier. Um, so yeah, club, club, clubs clubs do vary. Listen, first team players always get treated like princesses. It's as, it's as simple as that. Um, and you know, um, but with regards with regards to academies, it's, it's a little bit different. I think people do need to be aware. You know, you will go to some clubs and it's totally different environments. Um, I went to visit. I think it was Blackburn Rovers not long ago, and they and they were fantastic. Um, again. It was just researching me. It was just to go up there and just speak, speak, speak see a different environment and a contacts up there. And they were great guys, very, very open. And, you know, got to see a first team session, which is virtually unheard of. You know, so yeah, it's good. In 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 terms of uh, scouting and recruitment itself, I mean, you've got a, a load of experience in in this area. <clears throat> a lot of people, the same things, being a analyst or analyzing games is it's a dream job you get to watch football every day and it's you know you're not really you, you're just working eight hours a day then you go home and then you watch tv uh, can you just explain for those who may not have had a role before in scouting and recruitment what it can be like because i can imagine what it's like because i used to be in an analyst role and it's not eight hours a day that's for sure if you um if you, if you enjoy your life, don't go into skate. Don't go into skating and recruitment. <laughs> it's as it's as simple as that. It's uh, the hours are ridiculous. It's not it's not just a case of you go to a game, you watch it, you do a quick report, and that's your day done. It's uh, nothing's further from the truth. Um, so, and I think anything what people got to realise is when you're working your way through this system, obviously you'll start off at sort of your grassroots level, and then obviously you can work your way up. The higher you work your way up, the doesn't become easier, it becomes harder because a lot more is expected from you. Uh, sometimes, I'm being honest, a bit unrealistic. I think the, ex the expectations of um, some of the heads of recruitment, what they expect from their staff. If you've got a normal job, nine to five, especially some people work shifts, and then you're expected to work every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, sometimes two games. You know, when I was starting up, even at the higher level, sometimes I'd say, listen, we've got a kickoff at 10.30, but at three o'clock I need to be somewhere else to watch another 23s game. You've got, you've got to go. The problem is there when you've got your missus and, you know, I'm a, I'm a family man, I've, you know, I've got a lad who's, you know, he's, he's not so little now, he's 14, but at the time I was a little lad. You've got to have that, that work-life balance. And it's one of those, it, you can be the blue-eyed boy if you work every weekend, but the moment you turn around and say, well, I can't wait uh, this week, this week, this weekend. Oh, he's lazy, he's got no, he's got no commitments. And I think... You know, I've worked with some very, very good heads of recruitment and I've worked with some, that, like I say, who, who are just very, a little bit unrealistic and I think they're caught with the football world too much. I think in, 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 in any industry, you've got to look after your staff. You know, so again, I'll go back to West Brom, you know, as soon as I went through the door, they gave me loads of kids. You felt part of the environment. You felt part of the organisation. Whereas other clubs have worked out, my God, try and get a T-shirt out of them. <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, you know, it's like getting blood from the stove. You're wearing Nike and they're all in Adidas. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he opens up his locker, you know, he's got, he's got five coats, he's got 20 jumpers and, you know, he just looks at you and goes, nah. You know, but I think, you know, it's no, it's no, it's no, it's no surprise why certain clubs do really well because they invest in the people and, that, and they look after the people. And when I was head of academy in Notts County, I was very much a case of, you know, let's be realistic, you know, our, our expectations from these people. Let's look after them as much as possible. We'll get more work out of them that way. Don't work them to the bone, where to the point where you know they, you know, they become unproductive because they're just too, too tired. You know, because the silly thing is, when I really need a player watching, and we want to sign him on the Monday, but I need to see get someone to see him on a Saturday. But works everyone to the bone, and then you're trying to phone around on a Friday night. No one's going to work for you on a Saturday morning at like a couple of hours' notice. So I think they need people need to look at it from that perspective. 
it is long hours. It is long, long hours. If you ever see a job description for head of recruitment, it's oh, 40 hour a week. In your dreams, it's 40 hours a week. You know, you've to be honest, during the season, you won't get a day off. You won't get a day off. And you're probably you're probably doing you're probably doing at least 70, 80 hours. That, that's a that's a realism. And I'd rather be upfront with people and tell them this because it is long. Don't get me wrong, it, it can be very rewarding. If you get a good club and they look after you, it's a great job. And, and, it, and it's really testing if you do actually love football that much. It, it's going to test you in terms of <laughs> your commitment, for sure. Yeah, I think a lot comes down as well. I think a lot comes down to your time management and your management skills. Uh, and I think there's times, you know, again, I think any academy, any job, any role, really, you've got to have good stuff around you. Make sure you do that, because that way then you can delegate a little bit. You know, you don't always need to be that, that, that guy who's got to go and see that player. If you've got trusted staff, then that's what you should be aiming for. Get the right people in place. So, you know, it takes a little bit of pressure off it because, you know, even heads of recruitment, I feel sorry for some of them. You know, they work themselves to the bone. I've looked at them and said, you know, you need a break. You know, you look tired, you know, and that's, you know, and that's why, especially today, when we talk about people's welfare and mental state, you know, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have that little break, you know. Um, again, years ago, there's a thing called investors, investors in people. And I think, you know, you've got to do that. Look after your staff. And, and when you was in uh, the Notts County Academy role, had your previous previous experiences in the scouting uh, department, did, did you remember how it was? And then you remembered, you know, maybe there could be a bit more interaction between the coaching staff and the, uh, the recruitment and scouting staff. And did that, did that, did you keep that in mind when you was uh, Academy director there? We had no recruitment staff when I went there. No <laughs> <laughs> recruitment staff. Oh, no, I loved it. Yeah, I, had, I, had, I had one head of talent ID. And I think that was about it, to be honest. But, um, luckily, he, he, was, he was a very good guy. He was a very good guy. But we, and this is the other thing, when you go from, you know, so my, my recruitment was obviously Manchester United, West Bromwich Albion, Aston Villa, you know, three clubs who are synonymous with producing good players, recruiting good players, and got good, some very good scouting networks. Uh, when I got to Notts County, they'd always produce a gem every now and again. They'd always produce a, a, a royal gem, and not, beds, not even a bit of a hotbed for producing good players. It, it just does, realistically. Um, so, yeah, when I, when I went there, I was, I was very open to, you know, I actually said to the, um, the coaches within the academy, if you fancy doing any scouting as well, you know, I'll speak to the chairman and I'll try and get a budget for us, you know, to do that. My, my long-term aim has always been, uh, obviously, to be a manager. That's what I want to do. That's where I feel my, my strengths lie. But the way I've looked at it is, I think there's a lot of managers who can manage, a lot of coaches who can, who can, just, who can just coach, a lot of recruitment guys who can just do recruitment. I think if you want to be a manager, I think Mourinho's very good at this. He can sort of do a bit of everything. He's very switched on at that. But what he will do is he'll then bring in the top people in that. He'll bring the top sports science guy in, top yeah. recruitment guy, top first team coach. He knows exactly what he wants and he can probably do it himself, but he'll always bring in someone a little bit better to, to enhance that. And that's the road I want to go down. It's cool. It's just, learn, it's just learning your trade. For me, if, you, if you're going to do this, this job, uh, this is where I've got not a lot of sympathy with some people at times, especially guys from out the pro game. You, you expect just to go into positions. You've got to learn your trade. It's no reason why Scotty Parker at Fulham has done fantastic. You know, he went into the youth academy system and learned his trade as a coach and worked his way up. Stevie Gerrard, Saka the same, done fantastic. Uh, he went into Liverpool and worked there and worked with some very, very good coaches. And he's taken those coaches with him, to be honest. You know, so it's so surprised why these people uh, have, have done good in their sort of roles. But yeah, regards to the regards to like say at county, it's very much a case. I said, you know, or said to the coaches, if you're happy to go out scouting, you don't have to, it's great. It's, you know, it's just another feather in your cap. You know, we'll pay for your courses to go and do that. Uh, we then did a we actually sent out uh, an open invite to people wanting to get into, into scouting and said, listen, if you're not going to scouting before, we'll bring you in. You know, we'll bring you in. Ideally, you know, you're working in grassroots football, so your mind works at a higher level, but we'll get you in and we'll train you. So, you know, again, it's in-house training. Sometimes it's not a bad way. You can coach them, um, develop in the way you sort of want them. So yeah, that's the road, road we sort of went down there. Uh 
a long, long time ago, I had a, like everyone else in football, had a few cheeky trials. Uh, one was with Notts County and I was not on the main pitch, but I was watching the training of the main uh, academy session. And uh, it was already an hour into the session, 40 minutes in, and, and this guy turns up late, like his kit bag and everything, goes on, just starts playing. I thought, what's going on? I'm here trialing or whatever, and this guy's just coming in late. It was Jermaine Pennant anyway, and then he got his move to Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably a good move on their part. And I thought, you know what? Start being a bit later and you might... You might <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, he stood out then, you see. That's what it was. He, everyone, everyone knew who he was, you know. It's, yeah, it's, good, it's good tactics on his part. Yeah, you don't want to be a sheep. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> it, it helps if you've got the ability to, to uh, back you up as well. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. It, in terms of ability and talent, what are, what are some of the players you've seen where before they may have been picked up or before they may have uh, gone to a bigger club, you've seen them for, you know what, that, that's going to be a player sometime in the future? Been quite fortunate from, from a coaching perspective. Uh, again, when I was at Nottingham Forest, they all, it's quite weird. They always seem to have like a golden era. So before I got there, you had the Harewood stage and uh, um, Dawson and all those kind of players who yeah. came through. When I was at Forest, we had um, Patrick Bamford, so I worked with him a few times. Um, Jamal Lasalle, also the Newcastle captain now. Um, Oliver, oh God, Oliver Burke, as well as Sheffield United. So, you know, he was there. And to be honest, those players always did stand out. Uh, Jamal Rassel stood out. He was a natural leader, even, even as a kid. Uh, very well disciplined. Uh, he was, his whole personality, his whole, whole persona. I think the thing is with these guys, I think they they were football obsessive. Uh, you know, uh, all three of them, you know, were, were, were fantastic. And I think they, it does shine, it does shine through. I think if you get real talent at an academy, I think it will it will shine. But again, what I'd say to any sort of person, really, you can never tell what a player is going to tr truly develop or not, or when they're going to develop. And this is where it's hard. I think there's a lot of, I know it comes from parents sometimes, a lot of negativity around academies. Yeah, and academies do get it wrong sometimes, but it's also a tough decision. And I've seen kids who have been, as a nine-year-old, tipped as the next best thing. And I'm like, well, He's not really. I say all he is is he's just happens at this moment in time to be better than any other nine-year-old out there. I said, but is that because he's been playing football longer than anyone else at that age? You know, some kid might be taking football at seven, but been good. You know, but he's he might have been playing since he was four or five with all, all the siblings, and that's developing quicker. Is he just a little bit older? So the prime example. I remember I went to a tournament years ago. He was in a. God, it was, in, it was in Birmingham somewhere. And everyone, all these scouts are flocking around this one player. And it was quite hilarious. And I remember going up to his, his, his manager at the end and said, oh, you come to talk about such and such. I went, well, no, to be honest, I've come to talk about your defender. And he said, well, why? He said, I'm interested. He said, why aren't you interested in, in the forward? I said, well, he's just twice the size of anyone else. And I say, and that's why he's quicker. I said, but he's probably scored two goals a game, but he's probably seven. You know, I said, he's got no composure. I'd say, but... Your player at the back is, 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 is phenomenal. He reads the game really well and everything else. I said, but everyone's going to get drawn to him for the wrong reasons. You know, technically, he's not very good. I said, all your team has done is just play the long ball over the top. And it's a sprint. And he's happens to be quicker than everyone else. He's not necessarily a good player. You know, and again, I think with a lot of players, I think it's not until they get to 14, 15, you've got a real idea of where you think they're going. But it's a tough decision, I think, for clubs. Um, they've got... The finances only allow an X amount of players to go through you know, onto the scholarship scheme or apprenticeship scheme, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a one, it's a, it's a tough one. But I think sometimes you've got to look past the physical side of a player, for instance, what's his long-term development. So when I was in Holland, the prime example there was, they turned around and said, had Dennis Bergkamp been in England, he said he would never have made it. They said, because at 15, 16, he was small, believe it or not. He said he was short. He was short and lightweight, they said, but technically he was better than everyone else. Tactically, he was miles better than anyone else. They said he was the best kid we had. They said, but in England, you would have probably got rid of him. You know, so you like to think those days are going a little bit, but I've still seen it with some clubs. Again, it comes, it comes down to some clubs' philosophy. They said, so we let him develop, and they said he, he said he literally hit 16 and ended up becoming, what, six foot three, I think he was? Six foot three, six four. He was, 
you know, he was a beast. They said, but he literally got his growth spurt at a later stage. So, you know, from that, so having worked with players, that one's tough. Having seen players, the, 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 the two standout players, well, there's three really. When I was working at Villa, obviously we had Grealish. Grealish was phenomenal as a young kid. He was no different to what he is now. A player with a smile on his face, just wants to run at players, uh, you know, and always did. You know, so to be around him and see his development was phenomenal. Um, the best kid I probably saw was Phil Foden. I watched Man City on the 14s play against Man United on the 14s. I think I was working at Villa at the time. I remember going, I think I was playing at some Beads score up in Manchester at the time. And um, I came back and wrote this report and I basically said, if this kid ever comes available, which I don't think he will for one minute, you must, in big letters, sign this kid. He was that good. And obviously, he's gone on to uh, great things. And uh, and the next player I saw, who he was a standout as well, was uh, Jude Bellingham. So when he was at Birmingham City, I watched him numerous times. To be honest, uh, put the report in and said, "Yeah, this this kid's gonna, you know he's going to be um, a hell of a player." But again, him and Phil Foden, totally different players, totally different. You know, Bellingham was very box to box, reads the game superbly. You know, I think. Bellingham at times played up front a few times at Blues as well. So he got the versatility. Whereas Foden was just uh, technically, he, he was fantastic. He, he ran you to pieces that day. Uh, apart from the, the obvious attributes what stand out, uh, as in uh, te technical, technical, uh, physical, what else would you be looking at in terms of uh, uh, about the player, the character and personality? I mean, it's, it's funny where people just watch football games on TV all the time. And then when you go and watch it live from different perspectives, it's totally different and you see so much more. This is why scouting live is so much different than scouting through a, a TV or computer screen. Even though you can stop it, replay it and everything, you still don't get a feel unless you're sat there and you're seeing them warm up, you're seeing them talking out of camera view to, to someone else and how they behave. So what, what yeah. are some of the other things you'd say you, that, that uh, you, we should be looking at players to, to kind of grade them or? Yeah, for, for, for me, you need to physically watch the players. It's quite interesting. I've had uh, people send me DVDs of players. I'm not being funny. I'll go and play out in the park now. Show, show about 30 seconds of me looking like a world beater and the rest of it are awful. <laughs> Hands on knees, panting after about five minutes. Yeah, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be pretty. You know, you need to physically go and see. Now, when I was at uh, Man United, for instance, what I'd do is, so, um, say, for instance, I'd gone to Leicester. So we had to go and watch Leicester's under-18s or 23s play. If it was under-18s or 16s, I would get there an hour before kickoff, And we'd already knew who the player was we were watching, because by that time, the player would have been targeted. And this is what play players need to I think, understand as well, and also from a scouting perspective. We would literally watch him from the moment he got out of the car, and we'd stay an hour after kickoff to see what he did. We wanted to see what he's eating on the way to the ground. He's, he's sitting there with big mac and fries and a milkshake before the game. And, and I kid you not, I've seen it even at academy level. You know, you know what's he doing? You know, what, you know, seeing is he carrying his own energy drinks? Is he carrying his own water? Any energy food? He's got anything like that after the game? Is he refueling straight away? And it gives you an, sort of an insight into you know just how serious they are. And what they're understanding about what it takes you to be a pro. So again, this comes onto the scouting. So again, if you've got like a, a one o'clock kickoff, and you know you think, oh, you know, I can leave as soon as the game finishes, you're wrong. You've got to, you've got to get there if you want to do it properly an hour before and an hour after. You know, again, you're clocking who who are they with? You know, what are their parents doing? Are their parents sitting there eating in front of the kids eating Big Macs and all stuff? And it's all stuff you know, you know. And I think when you when you're taking players now. You know, it's a big investment at 16, you know, you're, you know, or 18 or 20, you're putting a massive investment into these players and you need to, you know, know everything about them. And, you know, you hear stories of, you know, it's something I've not done, but, you, you know, at the first team level where clubs are even employing people now to go scroll through um, players' social media accounts, you know, see what comments they've made on there, you know, so everything's scrutinised now, you know. And again, from, from a coach and a scout perspective, you've got to be careful what you do post on social media because it, it can come back to haunt you. You know, big brother's watching, you know, whether you like it or not, you know, you might make a half-hearted joke. If it's, if it's your professional profile, 
online, you've got to be so, so careful what you put on there. Absolutely. And especially when something has a value on it. So if we're talking about a play, what may be worth, let's say 30 million, the amount of detail you need to know about that investment or potential investment, it could save you a lot of hurt and, and financial hurt later on as well as, as a business or a club. So that detail, like you said, it is so important. Again, at first team level, there's been a lot of players and fans have wondered why, you know, why don't we sign this play? That'd be great for us. Say the press wants to come, you know, they've, they've had things like massive gambling debts or drink or drug um, problems, you know, it's, you know, it's hushed up. It's you know, the old classic is, oh, you know, such and such has gone down with an injury, we're not seeing it for a 12 months and you're thinking it's probably on a ban that's why <laughs> you know people people don't realize it's hushed up but that's what actually goes on within the you know within football it's a little bit cloak and dagger at time and but again like i say it's a massive investment you know you're paying someone 20,000 40,000 60,000 pound a week or even even higher you've got to make sure everything's above board you know and can't you can't fault clubs for doing that so moving on from uh, that that's that's a load of experience from from england and uk by the way but moving on now to uh, scandinavia norway so you headed over to norway uh, to become a head coach tell us a bit more about it yeah it was, it was quite strange when i was coaching over there anyway with my company and i was doing a little bit of skating over there and the local team um lillehammer fk which is it's based right uh, where the olympics where the winter olympics were i think it was in 92 92, I think. Um, so the ground we had was phenomenal. It was actually the old Olympic Village. So the facilities we had were absolutely top draw. So we had a big indoor arena where our sort of where my office and changing rooms were. We had a full Olympic-sized gymnasium. We had, uh, I think it's about 12, 15,000 indoor arena, which we used for futsal. It had a running track, an indoor running track around the inside and upstairs. We had all of this. However, when I got there, it was hardly ever used. It, it, it was... Ugh. In Norway, they don't realise what they have compared to England. And when I should tell them about what we haven't got as opposed to what we have got, they thought, well, you're the biggest footballing nation in the world. Why haven't you, haven't you got that? I say, because at the top level, investment's phenomenal. At the bottom level, it, it's, it's nothing. Uh, you know, whereas over there, so they are like councils, are called communes. So the communes have like a real civic duty to the people. So... You could have a little um, a little village team, what you call here, and but they would have at least one three G pitch, probably uh, on the floor heated. Most of them would have a second pitch. Then they've probably got about seven eight grass pitches as well. One of the places we work at called Beery, um, they just had a brand new indoor arena built as well. And this village probably houses oh, five hundred people. It's, it is nuts. We can't get this in cities here. So they got all these all these facilities uh, out there. It's crazy. So we had at Lillehammer, we had uh, two 3G pitches, uh, both both heated. Um, obviously, we had the Olympic Village as well. We it, it was a coach's dream. We obviously got hills galore. You could work on the um, the physical side with players. It, it, it's just immense, you know. I went there the first day and just, just couldn't believe what you know what we actually had. What probably did at the time they didn't really make use of. I think they've come a little bit blase about what they've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, little bit taken for granted, and and we talked a little bit off air before we came on live, uh, just about the contrast to not even lower league football in England, but you, you're talking about lower end championship clubs, League One, League Two compared to the facilities on offer, like, like you said, over, over in Norway, Scandinavia, even places like Iceland, uh, Asia, the Middle East. And I think when people actually realise, well, actually other countries are a bit more well-equipped, yeah, the, the level or the quality of a top league may not be as competitive or quality in, in terms of level-wise, but if you want a nice place to work and live and possibly pay a little bit more as well, you know, it's it's one of the best chances you you'll get to to do that in football. It's um, it's brilliant. So to be able to go straight to the pro game at that level, so Lillehammer would be equivalent to uh, English sort of probably League Two. You know, so to go straight to that level is phenomenal. It just wouldn't happen there. It, it, it just wouldn't. Um, you know, you've got to look at it. You know, you're very sort of fortunate. 
like say the facilities when I got there, my argument was there's no reason why you can't produce player after player after player just in your area alone, let alone for the whole. So their their recruitment policy would probably be very similar to what it is in Holland. So I went to Holland, I went to also studied at Feyenoord and Utrecht, uh, Wilhelm Twey, went to Wilhelm and their Wilhelm's recruitment was that good. A lot of their stuff ended up going to Arsenal. Arsenal recruited them because of how successful they were. So what they would do is they would only recruit from within their area. It's very, much, it's very similar to what Norway is. They will only recruit from their area, probably too, probably too restrictive at times, because obviously the demographics with Norway, the best way to describe it, the country's shape, it's like a bloody big bed sausage. So right at the top, you've got, you've got Russia, then you've got Finland, then you've got Sweden all down the side, Denmark at the bottom. You know, it's crazy. So... Say, for instance, on basically like the West Midlands, the West Midlands is not like the West Midlands here. It could be like 300 miles long. You know, it's crazy. It's, it's nuts, really. So sometimes they probably don't recruit outside in, in the villages probably as much as what they should. Um, but when you look at the facilities and how, how many players are in each of these clubs, so our juniors, we would have, um, I think they had three teams at every age group. It, it's, it's just phenomenal. You know, look at a lot of the facilities to sort of cope with that. Um, but we were like, you know, it's, there's no reason why you just you just can't develop players here and take your club further. So, uh, but again, I think the, the big thing you've got when you go to a, another country, um, you've got to understand their culture. You've got to understand how they do things. And when you go, when you're employed as a coach, you're you're not there to change their culture. You know, you're there to enhance what they've already got. Now, sometimes that can be frustrating. Sometimes you might be a bit surprised with um, what they will sort of, what they are open to. But there is, there is challenges, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I think Norway really needs to realise, realize, should I say, just how lucky they probably are, you know, and the potential there is phenomenal. You know, it's endless, it's endless really. How, how competitive was the league and how, how did you do in general as a, as a team when you were there? Yeah, <laughs> we, we actually did really well. Uh, but when we went there, it, it's, it's the usual scenario. A club get you in, tell you everything's great and you've got no worries. And when you get there, you realise, yeah, cheers for that. So when I got there, I didn't realise I'd sat all the staff. So I had no staff. Um, and 75% of the squad had left because they'd not renewed the contract. So in Norway... Like most countries, they like the money. So it's a case of if they're at a contract and someone suddenly offers them money, they, they, they will quickly yeah, go. Yeah. So yeah. when we got there, we were like, my days. I, I literally, I looked at it, I think we had eight players. and no backroom staff, no nothing. Um, yeah, I was like I said to you, I said to, like I said to you off air, it, it was two weeks before they actually told me I had an office. I kept walking into the changing room. We had these beautiful, like, bigger than most Premier League football grounds. Uh, changing rooms, phenomenal. I kept walking past his door thinking, what what's behind that door? So they asked, like, obviously, one of my new assistants, what's behind there? He goes, idiot. He goes, it's your bloody office. <laughs> no one had actually told me. So I had an office, but no one had to tell me. Like, cheers for that. But uh, that's just Scandinavia. <laughs> that's just what it's like. <laughs> it's almost like the, 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 let's set up the foreigner to fail. Let's bring a foreigner in because we know everyone's leaving, all the staff's left. We don't want to. We don't want to put any Norwegian under bus. Let's get a, an English coach in. Yeah, right, and then see what he can do with that. It's, it's, it's probably a little bit of truth in that. So also, I'd come from Man United, so they could. I think they, <laughs> you know, so that, that, that they'd lost a lot of staff and everything else. They thought, right, we can appease all the fans by saying we brought someone in from Man United. So, um, so we went on a crazy recruitment drive. Now, luckily, fortunately, because I worked in the area, I bought, I managed to have good contacts. Now, what we did is, being a bit creative, we managed to um, get sponsors to pay for some players. So, again, and this comes down to me about my whole development pathway. So, what, what I said was, if I wanted to be a successful manager, as well as be able to coach and have experience coaching, I need a good database of players. So, of course, for Villa, West Brom and Man United, I've been tracking the best players in academies from probably the ages of, of 14 all the way through to the well, first thing, realistically. So what we did was I looked at a couple of players from the UK. So I brought in George Cousins, who had been released from Norwich. Uh, I brought in um, Ollie Mulders from Birmingham City, who was there on the 23s captain. 
I brought in um, Jay um, Beckford from Arsenal. Brought him in. I brought another lad in uh, who's actually Norwegian but been living in England. He was really good. I brought a lad in who I had with me at Nuts County. So we brought them over. So we actually got sponsors. So instead of just sponsoring the club, we actually got to sponsor the players. So we said to them, because there's a little bit of... The club was going through a whole development phase. There's a bit of animosity between the town and the club in terms of what they, what they had done in the past. So as I get the, the sponsors on side, I said, listen, I said, you know, you're not sponsoring the club, you're sponsoring the players to make the club better. So we ended up with some really good players. Um, what we ended up doing as well was we probably, I think we, I think at one stage we had eight players from the youth team within the squad and probably four or five of those are starting. So we started the season, we, we were top, uh, top of the league. Um, and I think in Norway what happens is you have a break halfway through the season. Uh, so you have a month off. It's again Scandinavian, it's nuts. But it's what they do. Like, it's not it's not a family time. So the very the very family orientated. It's a half you get just get into the season, just going to our stride. We just beat the team at the top of the league who'd won every game of the season, beat them five 0 So we just beat those and the season stops. And you're like, oh my days. So but we we never finish outside the top three. Um, all, all season it, it, it was really good uh, it was just a shame in the end the funding got pulled uh, through no fault of anyone else's and they couldn't afford my wage or the um, all, all the players wages and it's a shame because they're on the they're on the, the verge of something really special there and and what what great value you was able to bring not just as a coach uh, but also to to have all, all your contacts your network of players and you brought a hell of a lot of value to that club and for the for the chairman and the owners as well. And I think that's an important part for other clubs to to look at when they when they are. Look, we know that there's two sides to this story, right? We know that some clubs will say to coaches returning from from abroad, yeah, but you don't know a lot about the English game or you haven't got any contacts in the English game. You don't know about English football. Uh but really, well, for an example, if we're talking about you, you have. So it doesn't matter about where you were. You, you've used that contact to then do well in another country. So most of them players are from England anyway and UK based. So that, that could not be an excuse for you, although it, it probably... Yeah, this is the whole thing, and this is what, you, what you'll get in the UK. And it's, uh, I think it's an easy option for, for a lot of uh, chairmen to say this. And I think, it, I think it's wrong. I think... I'd rather employ someone with no qualifications and no experience than someone who's learned their trade. Um, you know, so someone like myself, it's my database is phenomenal. So I've, I've tracked these players continually and, you know, I've kept records of who these players are because that's obviously my, like I say, my end goal is obviously to get back into uh, as a first team head coach somewhere now, you know, ideally within the UK. So not only attract players who potentially are under 23s and probably going to get released and not get a pro contract. But what these clubs don't realise, when they get released at under 23s, and also for players realistically, they think, oh, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to drop into, if they've been released from a Premier League club, I'm going to, you know, at Man United, for instance, I'm going to, I'll give at least a, a championship, maybe a League One or League Two. It doesn't happen. You know, I'm going to tell you the truth, it doesn't happen because what happens is, if you've not been deemed to make it for the first team, so if you get if you get released under twenty threes, you usually get released at nineteen twenty. So there are a lot of clubs looking and go, well, we're going for promotion. Well, we need a goal scorer, but he's not proven, so we're not going to get him. We're not going to bring him in. A bottom team, likewise, are looking and go, we need goals to get out of the relegation. I'm not going to bring him in again. He's not he's not proven to get the goals, and this kid just gets shifted in the end of. He fought soon. He fought. He can't even get a decent semi pro club. Yeah. No, so for someone like myself who realises that potential and has tracked these players for years and know, well, actually, I know this kid can do. So I've not just gone and watched him twice play. I've watched him over a period of maybe five, six, seven, eight years, which is, is, is the case now. But again, also with, um, you know, club, clubs here now, the amount of players who I know who are desperate to come out on loan, you know, who we can get on loan, who do a phenomenal job for teams, you know, he's, he's endless. And I've always tracked, you know, I've always kept track of where these players are. And I don't think, I think a lot of clubs just don't realise, and I think a lot of people working in football don't realise, when you get to the first team level, when players go out on loan for the under 23s, you'd automatically think a lot of clubs, you know, these clubs have got fantastic links with, with clubs to send players out. The reality is they haven't a lot of time. It's no surprise 
your teams who are successful have probably got a couple, have got a link. So, like Leicester's a prime example. Yeah. They resources um, to send them. Fergie, when he was at Man U in his day, he used to send players to Preston, you know, a, a lot, you know, that they had the links there. But a lot of clubs just don't have those links. You know, I, I got phone calls uh, just before the first lockdown from quite a few players who I work with. So I work with a lot of players on a one to one and small group basis. And they said, you've got any contacts? I need to go on loan. I said, well, are the clubs sorting you out? And they go, no. And, the, and, and this is Premier League clubs. You know, we're not talking like League Two clubs. This is Premier League clubs. And, they, and they're just leaving up to the kids to sort out themselves. And, you know, I was a little bit gobsmacked by it. But, you know, it's not a surprise in, in some aspects. But I think, like I say, yeah, in regards of, uh, for myself, yeah, my, my database knowledge for teams who, God, you know, around the conference and League Two and League One or, or anyone is, you know, is good. But that's, you know, that's the, the, the goal I set myself. If you want to reach the top, you know, I've got to have that, that, that database of players and I've got to have the ability to sort of coach and manage. So that's what I work towards. And like I say, it's, you know, it's, it's been a long process, but, you know, it's, it's starting to bear fruit a little bit now. I wonder, I mean, this, this would be a huge topic, certainly one we couldn't cover now, but... Do you, do you think uh, a lot of the clubs, Premier League clubs, although a lot of them aren't as wealthy as, as they should be or as other bigger clubs, because they get a certain amount of TV revenue, etc. per season, they're not paying attention to the value in these players. So it's easy to discard them because they're getting 20 million anyway. They're getting 40 million anyway. Where if they was told you're going to get zero they'll think, shit, maybe we need to, yeah, focus more on seeing if they will have good potential in two years or focus on getting them a club for three or four years and bringing them back. Is it really taken for granted now? Because they, they don't really need them. They can bring someone in from abroad for, for a, a few million or whatever. And the English lads or the, 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 the British players can just, you know, find their own way. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think... Um... It's, it's a catch-22. I'd look at it from the sort of manager's point of view. And I'd also look from the player's sort of point of view and from the youth development side. I think one of the problems you've got is now, it's such a fickle world. And if you look back now, say for if Alex Ferguson would come from Aberdeen now to Manchester United, would he be given as long as what he was to succeed as he was then? And the answer is no. He would, he would have gone. You know, and he'd probably openly admit that. You know, that's, that's you know, we're in a very results-driven world. You know, Liverpool own a bit of a lean patch at the moment and it's crazy people saying, oh, you think, you know, you think it's going to affect club? you like, come on. Seriously, what the guys achieve? Well, there's all the people calling it out, you know, and you think it doesn't make any sense. So you can see, you can see from a manager's perspective now, you know, so if you look at, say, so Villa's my local team who I support, always develop their own players. Southampton's whole business model is on developing players. So if you go in there as a manager, you know, you can do that. It's what I expected from you. That's what they want you to do. Other clubs you go to, you're like, it's ruthless. You know, Everton, another one, good, great academy. You know, they're very proactive in their recruitment nationwide. Yeah. You, know, you know, a really good club. I think, you know, it's no surprise again, you look at, you know, Calvert-Lewin and all them, they all went out on loan. So, but again, you've got to have a loans manager in place or someone, you know, even your 23s manager, if need be, who's responsible for that, you know, you've got to have these links. But again, there's no point of sending a player out alone if, if that club plays a totally different system to what you play and a totally different philosophy. Well, what's, the, what's the point in that? You know, so surely, I'm surprised there's not more clubs who have, like, unofficially, if you want to call it that, or officially linked up with, like, a League Two club or a League One club and said, right, you know, we're going to send you three players a year if I was first team manager if someone in League Two, for instance, I'd be like, fantastic. I know every year I've got three players coming in and it's cost effective for the club. It's a no-brainer. Likewise, I'm not just going to take anyone. I'd say to them, say, listen, I want the players who you seriously think you're going to go into your first team. That's the calibre of player one. You're not just going to dump players on me, you know, just because, you, you know, you're trying to justify something. But you wouldn't get into bed with a club like that anyway. You know, it's something that's got to work, you know, work both ways in that sort of system. So I can, I can see it from, I can see it from both, both perspectives here. Um, but I think, again, it's no surprise, the most successful clubs in, in terms of transitioning their players from youth to first team level 
are the ones who've got a structured loan system. Yeah, to- totally agree. And uh, Russ, just to just to wrap up, uh, I mean, this could go on for three or four hours. <laughs> really, really good chat. But just to wrap up, and, and without putting you on the spot, if if a coach was thinking, okay. Look, there's not many opportunities going on right now. I can't see where I'm going next, but I'm interested in getting into scouting or recruitment. Would you recommend they kind of not take a detour, but, you know, go into that area for a bit and, and could it enhance them in terms of networking, connections, to then go back into the coaching arena or to even progress that and, and just work in recruitment full time? Is it something you would recommend or would you say, look, if you want to be a coach, stay on the coaching track? I would, uh, for me, again, it purely depends what they want to get out of football. So obviously I had a long-term vision, a long-term goal and a long-term plan. So for me, I wanted to learn both. You know, I wanted to learn both. So I feel it's, it's the fundamental basics of being a manager or a coach at that level, you know, being able to do that. I think what people have got to realise is when you start off in the game, it's like when I went to Lillehammer, for instance, you go to a pro club, but I was literally doing everything. You know, I was doing the recruitments. I was doing the strength and conditioning work. You know, luckily, more so as part of my learning, I became a, an athletic sprints coach and a level two athletic sprints coach. You know, so I was doing that side of things as well, coaching, managing, you name it. When you take on positions, if you want to go to that level, don't expect when you get there, everyone thinks it's like the Premier League, you know, you have 20 support staff, you know, you, you'll turn up, and you're looking to get after you're looking to get your kit there, let alone staff. You know, staff's a bonus. So when you start off, you you know, you're gonna to have to accept you've got to have a knowledge of this because it's a bit again, same with non-league, you've got to be on your own a lot of time. And you've got but they still expect the same results. You know, so if you want to go down that route, then yeah, it's it's great. I think what's good about academies now is a lot of them have got these uh, development centers. So I know I do a lot, I've done a lot of work with Sheffield United, we've got a fantastic system, really good youth system there. Uh, I don't know one of their uh, heads of heads of um, heads of the development centre. What they're looking for is they're looking for people who uh, may want to do the coaching and also may want to do the scouting. So they're quite open to it. So I think a lot more clubs are looking at this now from a knowledge sort of base, yeah. experience base. They like to do the both. What I would say is if you're serious about getting into your coaching and you're struggling with the UK, look at overseas. There's so many jobs. Again, you know, your, your site's fantastic in what you do. You know, when I came through the system, you know, say internet wasn't about, you know, in a case of how do you find out about these jobs? You know, I just so happened to bump into an old friend by total fluke, realistically, you know, and ended up over in, you know, I met, I met him, I think it was something like the, uh, the June, and by July, I was on a flight to Singapore. You know, it, it, was, it was just crazy. Like, you know, literally five weeks I was off on, on a plane. Um, yeah, if you want to get, in, if, you know, if you want to do that, you're serious about doing your coaching. It's and you want to do it full time. Go and get your experience somewhere. Again, it's tough if you if you're a little bit older and you've got family and kids and misses and everything else. Then you're gonna to have to try and split the two. But the, the thing I would say is be honest with your misses and have that discussion with her first because it's a massive commitment. If you wouldn't be coaching or skating, you can't play on it. If you want to go far, you want to do it full time. You've got to, uh, it's a full-time commitment and it, and it is long hours and it, and it doesn't get any easier, unfortunately. You know, that, that's the reality of it. You know, so. Russ, that, that's a great point and a great point to finish on, really. If you're looking to try and go as far as you can in football, it, it might not matter if you live away and work abroad because you probably see your, your family the same amount of time if you lived in the back home. It, yeah. it, it really is that full-on and... You know, I think people need to really understand this or, I don't know, get some little taster of it because you're not going to have your family time. You're not going to be sat watching EastEnders at 8pm or whatever it is now and, and, and getting a takeaway. You, you're not going to be in the house. You're not going to be around the family to be able to do the school runs and everything. And, you know, if, if you're going to have them restrictions in, in the UK and you can't get a role anyway, then, as you said you might as well do it abroad then, at least get the nice facilities, a bit more money and, and benefit the family that way. And Yeah, it's true. So again, if you start coaching now with you at a development centre or an academy, you've got to plan your sessions, you know, and there's more sessions a week now, especially when you're starting up. It's like now, in my head, I've got uh, thousands of sessions in my head. 
So I don't need to write it down. You know, it's there. But when you first start off, you're like, you know, you do your panic. You want everything to be perfect, and you know, and you do that. But you've got to plan it. You've got to draw it up. You do it all nice and neat. You get your ruler out. You do it all nice. Everything's nice and planned. You can always tell a new coach because it always it always be like that. An experienced coach, he's like back of his hand somewhere. Oh yeah, I'm doing that one today. But that's just comes from experience. And it is, you know, so even when you're doing it part time, it's not a case of just doing the session. It's a lead up before it. You work in an academy. You're gonna have parents chewing your ear every time. You know, so if you finish at eight, you're not getting away at eight. You're probably gonna be dealing with it. You know arranging Saturday's fixture or notifying people or doing whatever. It's, you know, it's just right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you finish work, come home, and that's it. You know, you'll go to bed. It's, it's, and, that, and that's the reality of a football field. And uh, any ladies and gents listening, uh, we're not trying to put you off football altogether, <laughs> but <laughs> honesty is the best policy. We're just giving you a nice little insight. Yeah. And Russ... Russ, you've given us a huge insight. It's been a pleasure talking to you, mate. And thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Cheers, mate. Thank you.